Good morning, I'm Jason. First of all, I want to say you are uh, exceptional for getting out of house or apartment or whatever home is and being here. Uh, good on you. Uh, you should feel really proud of yourself right now. Winter's here. Apparently it's sticking around for a minute, but we're here and that's awesome. Uh, we're talking about our mantras, which if you're new here is encouraging because this is a really good time to get to know this community. You might hear something in our mantras that lets you know that you want to be a part of this or not. Like either way, that'd be really useful just to have some clarity, right? These mantras developed for our church at the very, very beginning as we were trying to describe the way that we would be a community together, the way that we would grow into grace and peace together, the way that we would follow Jesus together. And they've become not just a way of describing our life together, uh, but also like a gift for each person in your everyday. So hopefully you find the mantras something that encourages you or guides you in your work, your time with your family, friends, school. Uh, they're meant to serve you in your day-to-day -day and shape the community that we have here. If you've been here for a while, you've heard the mantras before, hopefully the, the refreshing is really helpful. Uh, but also hopefully you hear something fresh this time as we return to them because we're talking a little bit about what we've done with the mantras and a little bit about where they're taking us in the year ahead. So a little bit of that will come out today. Now, uh, let me remind you where we've been uh, for a moment. The first week we talked about sushi, not fish stew, uh, which is kind of a cheeky way of talking about our desire to have an intentional simplicity in our life together. We observed when we talked about that mantra that simplicity is helped when you have some clarity on who you are and what you have and what you're here for. Like, like, who are you, and what do you have in your hands? What do you have in your life? What have you been given? What experiences? Like, what do you have? And then what are you here for? Like, what is your life actually about? And the clearer that we get on those questions, the easier it is to maintain some kind of simplicity, right? But what about all of us who don't have a lot of clarity on those questions? I think a lot of us are like, man, if I had clarity on who I am, what I have, and what I'm here for, that would resolve a lot of things, but I'm working on that, right? Well, I'm with you in that sometimes. Uh, so the second mantra we found helpful as a starting point to address those questions where we declare loudly everyone an icon, every human life a sacred image, every human life of immense, immeasurable divine worth because a human being is here to bear the image of God for the world, right? Now, we've talked about that, but the thing about the everyone an icon thing is that when you, when you look at where that comes from and what God's doing in that picture, it raises some fresh questions. So the idea of everyone an icon comes from the very beginning of the book of Genesis where God is creating. So uh, you have God getting God's hands on the raw materials of this world and making something beautiful out of it. If you follow the arc of Genesis 1, what you'll see is the more that God gets God's hands on the raw materials, the more life there is, the more flourishing there is, the more diversity there is. And so you go from dark and chaotic and void at the beginning before God starts doing what God does. And by the end, you have seas and land and skies that are filled with diverse life that's flourishing. Like that's what it looks like when God gets God's hands on the raw materials, right? And then of course, you're, you're confronted with the fact that when you and I get our hands on the raw materials, it doesn't always look like that. Like sometimes when we get our hands on this world, when we get our hands on our lives, we just break things. It's like right now, I feel like we're living a moment in history where a lot of different ways that we have broken things are painfully apparent. We have broken families, broken lives, broken systems, broken institutions, broken ideas of justice. That sometimes when we get our hands on the raw materials, it doesn't look the way it looks when God does, right? So you might ask, like, what do we, what do, we do? Is, is the plot line just lost on this? on the idea of human beings bearing the image of God? 
Well, let me take you back to that original text and then show you where I think the the story moves forward, okay? So this is Genesis 1. We looked at it last week. God has been creating, and then God said, let us make humankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them promising start, right? But if you turn like one page in the scripture, you begin to see all the ways that we begin breaking things. Now again, this might raise the question as to whether the plot's just lost, but if you keep turning the pages and paying attention and you look for an echo of the image of God, you might end up, for example, in the book of Colossians, where we read this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Can you just hear how that holds together? Like that Jesus has arrived and Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This harkens back to that original calling for humanity, right? Now, the thing that happens here, though, is sometimes Christians will get this far and it's like, cool. So the action is relocated in Jesus because we keep messing things up. So I'm so glad Jesus arrived and Jesus is the bearer of the image of God, the the image of the invisible God. So we're just going to sit on our hands and hope that he fixes things. (laughs) Have you ever, like, gotten that message implicit? Have you ever heard that before? That can be where the preaching goes. Maybe not so directly, but if you're actually paying attention, sometimes it's like, look, when we get our hands on things, we just break things. So Jesus, thank God, is the image of God, and we're here to sit on our hands and let him do the stuff, right? Well, the problem is that's actually not where scripture ends. There's more to the way that scripture works this out, like in Romans chapter eight, where we read this. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He always had this in mind. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. Well, I'm not really a big fan of math in the Bible, but like, what's the, is it the transitive property? Like if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C? Anybody? Is that transitive? Okay, I'm kind of um, improvising here at the last service of the week. Um, but you track, right? We are called to bear the image of God. We've broken that in all sorts of ways. Jesus comes along and bears the image of God, and we are invited to look like him, which means the story was never thrown away. You get that? The plot was never forgotten. We're here to follow Jesus into the expression of God's image in our lives. The Son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. And after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. In other words, God never gave up on men and women bearing his image for the world. And you and I are invited to follow Jesus into the renewal, the restoration, the healing of that image. So that maybe, just maybe, when we get our hands on the raw materials of this world, we could also make beautiful things. So that maybe, just maybe, when we get our hands on this world, life could flourish more and more. Now, the, this week and next week, the mantras that we're going to look at are really meant to describe, how do we take that big idea that I just sketched? The idea that not only are we called to bear the image, but that God has not given up on us bearing the image. How do we take that seriously in our day today? How do we actually, as a community, try to live into that promise? Well, this week's mantra and next week's mantra are really about how we see that happening. You guys uh, ready to get into it? 
Good. Okay. Awesome. Uh, let's go to a mountain in Montana. Let me tell you about the first week of 2019 in my life. I was there. This is Big Sky. Anybody been to Big Sky, Montana? Couple? Yeah. Right on. Um, so I, I was there with some friends the first week of this year for a skiing snowboarding trip. This is the actual mountain where we did our skiing snowboarding. In fact, my buddy Ryan took that picture. Not bad, right? iPhones are impressive things. Um, the top there with the clouds sort of wisping off the mountain, that's the top of Lone Peak. And we went all the way up there. And then some of us took the gondola back down while some of the other guys skied the double blacks on the backside of the mountain to get down from that place. So we go out there for the first week for some mountain adventures, some skiing and snowboarding. And I walk out there a little bit confident. So uh, if you know at all my story, you know I'm not really very athletic, but the one thing our family did every year growing up was Colorado for some skiing because we had family living in Denver. So we saw that family a lot. Curiously, we didn't go visit our family in Ohio nearly as much. <laughs> Just kidding, that's not really true, but you can get the tension there, right? So we'd go to Denver and stay with our family and go up to the mountains, Breckenridge and Keystone and do all that kind of skiing, snowboarding stuff. Now, middle school and high school, we do it basically every year and I would ski. But toward the end of that time in our family's life, I just realized that snowboarding looks way cooler. So I decided after years learning how to ski that I would try to make the transition to snowboarding. Well, that's sort of at the tail end of those regular trips for our family. Then fast forward, now I'm 36 and my buddies and I go to Big Sky and I've forgotten a couple of things. First of all, I've forgotten that I'm 36. Secondly, I've forgotten that it's been like years and years since my regular trips to the mountain with my family. And third, I've forgotten that when I switched over to snowboarding, I was terrible. So we get to Big Sky and we rent our gear and all the other guys rent skis and I rent a snowboard and then we make it out to the mountain for our very first day. We're there on the bunny hill, like the bunny, bunny, bunny hill. It's not even like a bunny hill, it's more like a bunny slight curvature above the flat line of the ground, right? And I uh, strap on my snowboard for the first time in a very long time <laughs> and I stand up and I fall over. Like I, I haven't even moved yet. I literally just stand up on the board on flat ground before I come over to the crest of the bunny hill and I just fall right over. So I shake it off and I get back up and I start doing that thing where you kind of like inch your board over to the crest of the hill because you don't have ski poles, right? So I'm inching my board over and then I'm on the bunny, bunny, bunny hill and all my buddies are already at the bottom of the bunny hill. They've gotten the one rep in that they need before they hit the double black diamonds they're going to ski for the rest of the trip. And I'm like inching my way along the bunny hill and I catch a front edge and I face plant. I'm looking around, people are kind of zooming past me and I get back up and I shake it off and then I catch a back edge and I land on my tailbone and I start feeling something inside. Right? Have you ever had a feeling that's familiar, but you have to take a minute to figure out what it is. It's almost like if you smell like a pleasant aroma and it's reminiscent, like I know I've smelled this before, but I have to take a second to realize what I'm smelling. Well, I have that with feelings sometimes. Like I'm feeling something inside and it's familiar, but what's the word for it? And I'm asking myself as I sit on my butt on the bunny hill and people ski by, and my buddies are waiting for me at the bottom. I'm asking myself, what am I feeling? Is it anger? Yeah, yeah a little bit, but that's not really the center of what I'm feeling right now. Is it frustration? Yeah, there's a little bit of frustration, but that's not the best description for what's going on inside me right now. Is it, uh, is it embarrassment? It's pretty close. There's something like embarrassment going on, but I, I'm hunting for a more accurate way of naming it. And then I realize this familiar thing that I'm feeling. The phrase for it is performance anxiety. I'm feeling performance anxiety right now. And it stuck with me for the rest of the day. <laughs> We went up into the bigger parts of the mountain and like 
man, did I have a hard time. I would fall, and I would fall, and I would fall, and then I'd get up a little speed, and then I would fall harder and farther. At one point, I did what one of my friends described as a scorpion move, which I didn't know was a thing, but that's when your legs go over your back like a scorpion. At one point, I got airborne where my whole body was up in the air, and I don't know how I got into this position, but I landed first on the back of my head and my neck, and then the rest of my body hit the ground. And to this day, almost a month later, if I do right there, I can feel it. When I turn right about there, there's a little pain in my neck. I don't need a chiropractor, I'm fine, but like it's still with me, right? The whole day there, I'm feeling this kind of performance anxiety, and I'm thinking, well, I might as well use this for sermon research. So I'm thinking about where we're going as a church here, and I'm thinking about how performance culture can get toxic, and how if you've ever been in a place that creates performance anxiety, you've seen what it does to you, right? So maybe you've run into a toxic kind of performance culture that creates anxiety in you uh, in your workplace, where there's not just goals and challenge, but where something's a little sideways or a little um, dark, and the energies that are driving performance aren't good energies, but you know that if you don't perform, something's gonna happen, right? There are families uh, that are driven on a kind of toxic performance culture. Some family systems are really kind of hardwired for this kind of performance anxiety. And you know you've got to live up to a role in that family. You've got to pretend to be a certain kind of person for that family. You've got to have a certain kind of life to be approved of by your family system. Sometimes churches operate as performance systems. Maybe you felt that. You feel like you've got to perform a certain way. Maybe it's when the church is together in a room like this. And maybe it's the actual motions of the gathering and the things that are said and the way you stand or sit down. And you're nervous because you don't know how that's supposed to go. And you find out that the fact that you don't know how it's supposed to go means you're second class in the eyes of that religious community. Or maybe it's the way that you live your life during the week. And you, you just realize that like, you live a kind of everyday ordinary life, but through the lens of that religious community, you're not good enough or strong enough or moral enough or, or, or right enough in your day to day. And so there's a performance anxiety when you walk into that religious space. Or maybe it's belief. Maybe you feel like you have to perform belief, like you have to fake it. Because if you're being honest, you're not sure you believe all the things this community says they believe. You're not sure about the God thing, or you're not sure about the Bible thing, or maybe you like the Bible, but you're not sure that you believe the Bible the way other people believe the Bible, and you're not sure how that works for them, because you've read the darn thing. Anybody? And you're like, like, how does this book work the way you think it works? Because I'm reading this and it doesn't all add up. Or I'm not sure about the Jesus thing or the resurrection thing. But you sense that if you were to admit that you don't believe all those things or you're not sure if you believe all those things, you sense it won't go well for you. And so you're afraid to bring it up. Maybe you're afraid that you'll be looked down on because you haven't been able to see the world the way they see the world. Or maybe you're afraid the community won't be able to handle it because those are unsafe questions for them. So sometimes it's belief that has to get performed in a religious setting. And if you've ever walked into a church or been around Christians and you've felt anxiety creeping up or shame creeping up or just a deep sense of guilt, or even if like the mention of God starts raising that kind of performance anxiety we should probably call that out. Now, where we're going to go today is to propose that that's not really the way this should happen. I think there's an alternative that we can have in store here. But I want to also observe that uh, one of the ironies of a performance culture where there's a kind of um, unhealthy pressure to perform is that performance cultures almost always impede the very performance that they're intended to create. 
And I've had some experience with this, for example, as a music student growing up. So uh, again, uh, former comments about my non-athleticism uh, applying here. When I was in high school, I didn't play any sports to speak of, of any sort, but I played a lot of music. So I was in concert band and jazz band and drum line and did all the things, right? Well, I, I discovered um, the kind of toxic irony of a performance culture that doesn't help you perform in jazz band with a certain teacher who shall remain nameless because it's a local story, okay? So I was in jazz band, and I was in the fancy jazz band because there was a big school, so there was like the little jazz band and the medium jazz band and the big fancy jazz band, and I was in the advanced jazz band, and the teacher thought that we should really know that we needed to be advanced. And so he brought lots of performance pressure to this room every day. If anybody's seen the movie Whiplash, yeah? I'm not exaggerating when I say the basic energy and demeanor of the teacher in Whiplash, the only real difference being that this teacher didn't actually throw things at us to physically injure us. But if you remove that from the movie Whiplash, you get the experience that we had in jazz band under this particular teacher. If he felt like a student was slacking or not caring enough or not working hard enough, if they were missing a couple of their notes, or he just sensed that they weren't investing in this the way he thought they should, he would dress them down for 20 minutes in the classroom while the whole thing just stopped. He would put such heat on a person that like I remember one time I'm sitting next to another trumpet player who's getting dressed down for 20 minutes and the teacher's saying things like, do you think you're better than the rest of us? You think, you think that your work doesn't matter here? Why are you so selfish? Why, why don't you want to work as hard as the rest of this team to do the music, right? We've got a competition around the corner and we're not going to be good enough because of you. And he's doing this to the person sitting next to me and it's so intense that I can feel the heat. You, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm like inching away from my buddy while this teacher just dresses this guy down. Uh, he was concerned sometimes that we weren't keeping tempo properly, so he brought a device into the classroom to help. Now, our marching band at the high school was a big marching band, 400 students, and we would practice on a parking lot roughly the size of a football field, right? Well, we had a, a digital metronome that we would use out there during the marching band practice. Now, a metronome is that thing on your grandma's piano that goes tick-tock, right? that keeps tempo and you can change the tempo to keep the beat, but this was a digital metronome. So you dial in the tempo that you needed and then you would run the audio from the metronome into this loudspeaker that we had for the, for, the, for the marching band. Now mind you, this speaker is loud enough that when 400 students who were sprawled outdoors across a parking lot the size of a football field while playing their marching band instruments as loudly as possible, they can still hear the metronome. That's how loud this thing is. And he was mad at us for not keeping tempo, so he brought that entire rig into the classroom, which was about a third the size of the room that you're sitting in right now, and he would put it five feet away from us at the full volume, and we would twitch with every beat while we play the music because it physically hurt our ears. This is the experience that I had with this guy. And the, the curious thing that happened is with all of that pressure that he put on us to perform, we would constantly underperform when we went to these competitions and we knew it. Like if you've ever been a part of a team or a band that's rehearsed a lot, you know what you're capable of, right? You have a sense of what it looks like when you deliver the way that you can deliver, right? And you have a sense of when you're underperforming, when you know that you had more in you, but it just didn't make it out, right? And again and again, we'd go to these competitions and we would underperform. And this is the tragedy and the irony of a performance environment is that it often impedes the very performance that it's intended to facilitate, right? Well, then we had another teacher that came in and I had a study in contrast. Because after a couple of years of this, this very, very difficult person teaching our jazz band class, this other guy comes in and he had a very different mentality for what we were doing and how we should get to it. So I'll never forget like one of the first days that he led the class. He said, everybody put your instruments down for a moment and we all braced ourselves for a verbal beating because with the other teacher, if he said, put your instruments down, things weren't good. 
But we put our instruments down, and instead of hitting play on the metronome and abusing our ears, he'd start playing the masters. He'd put a, a record or a CD in the sound system in the classroom, and we'd listen to Coltrane. We'd listen to uh, the GRP big band, uh, this fantastic big band, and we'd listen to this music, and I think he sensed that we needed inspired again, and we needed loosened up again, and we needed to find the romance of what we were doing again. Uh, he would ask if anybody wanted to try a solo, and uh, this is like an improvised thing, right, where the band's just putting down like a 12-bar blues or something like that, and anybody want to try the solo? And somebody would timidly at first maybe volunteer. They'd start soloing for a second, and then to mix metaphors from an earlier story, they'd get out over their skis a little bit, right? Like maybe reach a little farther than their technique was ready for. Maybe they had a musical idea that they were trying to execute, and they just couldn't get all the way there, and they'd flub, or they'd lose the plot line, and they'd put their horn down, and they'd hang their head, and, and this teacher would stop everything for a moment. And instead of berating the person or shaming the person, he'd say, hey, I really like where you were going with that. He'd say, I think I, think I could sense what you, were, what you were reaching for there. I could hear where you were going, and I really liked it. He'd say, I like the fact that you stumbled over it because it tells me that you're stretching and that you're trying things. And I know there was a solo that you probably could have played perfectly, but it's not the one that would have been an improvisation and we're here to try new things and I like that. He'd say, you should go listen to like some of the bebop riffs that, that Parker played on his album. They might get into your fingers and help you with the vocabulary that you were looking for as you make this music. And everything started to change. And wouldn't you know it, with none of that performance pressure, we actually started showing up and performing way better at the competitions that we would go to. Now, um, when I think about the difference between teacher A and teacher B, and I think about um, the performance anxiety we felt in that room, and then the different experience that we had when this other teacher came in and brought a different attitude, I honestly can't help but think of what I see happening frequently with Jesus when he meets people in the middle of their performance anxiety, their guilt, their shame, their fear, when he sees people hanging their head, and he, he invites them to sort of lift their head again and try again. I think of moments like in Matthew 11 where Jesus says this, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? I take that to say, are you sick with performance anxiety in your faith or your spirituality? Then come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is Jesus, the bearer of the image of God, who says to people like you and me, you don't have to exhaust yourself with performance anxiety, but I do want to teach you how it is that you could get your hands on the raw materials of this world and make beautiful things the way that I make beautiful things. And this takes us basically to our mantra um, it's interesting, that room that I kept walking into with my trumpet, where for a couple of years we were abused and afraid, and then this new teacher came in, there's a name for that room. And it's, um, it's kind of obvious once you hear it. It's a practice room. It's called a practice room. Not a performance room, not a stage. It's a practice room. And this takes us to our mantra for the day, which is simply this. Practices, not performances. Practices not performances. The difference I felt between when that room was a performance room and when it was a practice room was intense. Like for example, I learned that in a practice environment, failure isn't fatal. 
In fact, in a good, healthy practice environment, failure is sometimes the best thing that can happen to you because whether you're learning a new physical routine or a new way of being human in the world, whether you're learning uh, something on the athletic field or in the music classroom, failure is the point where you often discover, oh, that's where I need to press in further. That's where the learning is about to happen. That's how I know that I'm stretching and trying new things, right? So in a practice environment, failure isn't fatal. Thank God, right? I've also learned that in a practice environment, perfection isn't really the standard, right? Because if you walk into a practice environment and you have to be perfect, you'll never pick up, you'll never try, you'll never start, you'll never get going. If performance has to be perfect, then we're all kind of screwed, right? Which points to the third big difference between practice and performance, which is that in a practice environment, everybody gets to play. Right, in a performance environment, we gotta cut anyone who can't do it, right? If you're not perfect, if you can't execute all the way, then we gotta cut you from the team. But in a practice environment, everyone gets to play. And one of the mantras that we've held dear around here from the beginning is practices, not performances. Now, I wanna pass out our illustration uh, for today's mantra with a bit of a disclaimer. I'm so glad that I just said failure isn't fatal because we failed on the printing. Um, it appears that um, these cards, uh, the backside where there's a little summary, some of the cards actually have the summary for next week's mantra which is probably very confusing. And we thought about maybe not giving you the wrong cards, but I really want you to have the image because the image is really the point. So if you flip it over and you read something about fields, that's next week, ignore that. We'll get you better printed cards next week. But we wanted you to have uh, this image. And as I hold this in front of you, and you consider not just the mantra, but the illustration that Scott has created, uh, I want to tell you one more brief little music story that has helped me think about practice. So in addition to uh, marching band and the jazz band and the drum line and the brass ensemble and all of that. I was also in piano lessons growing up, which is, yes, I, why I had no social life whatsoever. And I would go to piano lessons with a woman who I think still teaches in town, so I'll also protect her anonymity, but she was amazing. I'll call her Dr. Piano, because she had this PhD in piano pedagogy, and she really knew what she was doing. And you'd walk into Dr. Piano's piano studio as a student, and when, what you saw when you walked in there was two pianos side by side. She had two upright pianos right next to each other, and you, the student, would sit at one, and she, the teacher, would sit at the other, right? You'd open up your music that you were working on and you'd show her how you were doing, right? And sometimes what would happen is you would have a hard time like figuring out how these hands of ours, these fingers on your hand, are supposed to execute that thing that's on the page, right? So you'd stumble over it, you'd trip over it, she'd call a timeout, and then she'd put her hand on the piano next to you just a couple of feet away and you'd watch her hands do it. And something about seeing the pattern of her hands doing the very same thing that your hands were struggling to do would sort of get you over the impasse a little bit, right? There were moments where seriously, I would have the music in front of me and I would think it's just not possible. Like you can't tell me that human hands can do that. It just doesn't work that way. And then sure enough, and by the way, she had stubby little hands. She, forgive me, she was a very little lady. She was like that big and her fingers were like not even half the length of mine and I'd be there struggling to get an octave which is called like an eighth, which is a distance between keys. And then she would just throw down like a 10th, which is just like, like kind of like throwing down on the piano. If, you will. <laughs> and I would realize this thing that I thought was impossible isn't impossible. I just have to see her hands do it first, and then I would renew my commitment to it, and I would try again, and little by little, I would get there. Uh, on the mantra card, you'll see not just the mantra, but an image of hands. Uh, this is Scott's interpretation of our mantra, and I love it. Uh, first of all, you see that smallest hand there, and it has a, the circle and the palm. Now, this comes from a tradition in iconography and religious symbolism where the resurrected Christ shows his hand to you, and you see the wound where the nail of his crucifixion was, right? 
So you see there um, this reminder of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, of the actual pattern of his life, of what it looked like when he got his hands on the raw materials of this world, right? But then you see a pattern of hands behind his hand. And I see that and I think of those moments with Dr. Piano in the studio where I would watch her hands do it and I would try again and little by little I would get there. Maybe you've been in a workshop. Maybe you've learned how to use tools from your mom or your dad in the basement of the garage. Maybe you've been in the kitchen and uh, a loved one a little older than you, a little more experienced with making wonderful things would show you with their hands how they do it. And little by little, without any uh, pressure to perform, your hands learned the pattern and you became able to make something beautiful there too. Uh, This is really the heart behind this image that we'll hold in front of our eyes as we think about practices, not performances. Now let me um, take you into some snapshots of the life of our church that are meant to honor this mantra, because I think it's helpful to to know it's not just a theoretical mantra, but it it has actually shaped a lot of what we've done as a community. So some of this might be new for you, or maybe it's helpful to remind ourselves why we do what we do, right? Let's talk about the gathering, the room you're sitting in right now, the thing that we do on Thursday nights and Sunday morning, and how we've tried to make this a practice thing. So first of all, one of our feelings has been, we don't want you walking in here feeling like you've got to offer a performance. So it's okay if you don't know the words or you don't know the, the things that we do and you don't know where the bathrooms are or the coffee is. Like, none of that matters. Like, it's all okay. You don't have to prove anything when you walk into this place. And hopefully you picked up on that if you've been here for a minute. But we also wanted a room that says you're not here to watch a performance. This is also important for us too, okay? So it's, it's a little bit of a tension point because there are elements of this room that look a bit like a performance venue, but we've tried as hard as we can to push against that. So for example, we sit in the round. Well, that's because I don't think the most important thing happening in this room is on the stage. I think the most important thing happening in the room is you. And so hopefully somebody else is looking at you right now. And the fact that we're um, seeing one another across the room reminds us that we're all a part of the action that everybody gets to play, right? Uh, Sometimes it's the way that we shape uh, what happens in the program of the gathering. And so, um, well, for example, a few years ago, I was um, part of another church and I was preaching this particular Sunday. And a friend of mine who was uh, a student at Notre Dame, his mom had come into town to visit for the week. And she came to church with him and we met up afterwards. And I was really curious and excited to hear how she experienced the service that we had done, right? And she had a lot of really nice, kind, encouraging things to say. But then she said something that caught me off guard. She said, I was wondering, uh, when, when would we get to pray? And now the, the thing that happened inside me, my first thought before I said anything was, what are you talking about, lady? We prayed like seven times in that service. And I'm confused because I have the service order in my head. And we were very, very clear on how we did things. And I was the one preaching that day. And I can tell you for a fact, we prayed after song three at the 27-minute mark. And we prayed after my sermon at the 38-minute mark. We did prayer throughout the service. But I toned it down a little bit. And I said, oh, I, no, I, I don't know if you remember, but we, we prayed here and we prayed here. And again, she wasn't being critical or mean-spirited. But she said very gently, Oh, no, no, I know that you got to pray. I, would, I was wondering when we would get to pray. Right? And it wasn't until that moment that it had dawned on me that there might be a way of creating a gathering for a community where everybody feels like they actually get to pray, get to play, get to be part of the action, right? This is why sometimes we try to create just quiet, some space, right? Maybe some prompts around the screen. And we want to actually practice together a little bit in the here and now. That's why sometimes we, we reach back to old words, old prayers that we can put on the screen, like today, uh, Dan led us in this, when we put a prayer on the screen and we prayed it together. It's not that we're trying to force you to say something you don't want to say, but we want to actually have a community where you get to pray if you want to pray. 
And not just hear the holy man or the holy woman on the stage do all the praying for you, right? Now, another learning note that I think is helpful to share with you as we've developed as a community, um, we thought early on that silence would be a regular part of our gatherings because silence can help us pray, right? And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of noise in my life. And with all the noise in my life, it's, it's hard to find the quiet to understand my own inner world or to sense the presence of God or to hear what God might be saying or stirring up inside me, right? So we thought some quiet would be really useful. In fact, at our first experimental gathering ever, we did something like 10 minutes of utter silence with a room of 200 people. Awkward? You bet. But after the awkward, then it got interesting. And after the interesting, something profound started to happen in the room, and you could sense it even though nobody was visibly doing or saying anything. So we we experienced that, and we thought, wow, that was really interesting. We should do more of that. But we've learned more since then. And so I don't know if you've observed this slight change, but it has affected our practice. We've learned that while for most people, silence is uncomfortable, and by the way, we like a little bit of uncomfortable because nobody gets better without a little bit of discomfort, right? But while for some people or many people, silence is uncomfortable, there are some for whom silence is more than uncomfortable, it's unsafe. Silence in a big room of people, it might be because of some traumatic experiences in a person's past that, um, that Actual silence in a room with people can feel more than uncomfortable. It can feel unsafe. And while we're aiming for uncomfortable sometimes, we're not aiming for unsafe. And so we've altered our practice just a little bit. And again, you might have noticed this, you might not. But rather than total, utter silence from time to time, if we do some silence, we'll usually put a little bit of instrumental music underneath it. Again, just to make it safe for the people who need to know it's safe. Sometimes we'll say, hey, in this meditation time that we're going to have, if you'd like to, it's totally okay to get up out of your seat. You're welcome to kind of pace the corners of the room or whatever, because we've learned from people who are smarter than me, that if you have a particular kind of trauma in your life that makes that unsafe, just the permission to get up and move around a little bit might be really helpful. So it's just one of those learnings along the way is we've tried to actually create a practice community where everyone can play. Sometimes in our gatherings, we do the open floor. Maybe you've been here for that. Maybe we'll put a challenge to the community and then come back next week and ask, how did it go? And we want to hear all the stories, the good, but also the bad and the ugly. And sometimes the most profound things that happen in our gatherings are not a a song or a sermon from the stage and not a victory story from someone like in the seats who's talking about what happened, but just a really vulnerable account of how they tried this practice or they are wrestling with this idea and here's how it didn't go that well. Sometimes the most profound things open up in this church when somebody shares the failure points because, again, in a practice community, failure isn't fatal. In fact, failure can be the best thing that happens if we want to grow. Um, We could go on and on about the gathering, but the gathering is one of the places where we're trying to be a practice community, not a performance community. We also have tables. That's our second sort of major movement as a community. And tables, uh, you've heard about them from time to time if you've been around. Simply, it's people committing to one another for the same group for a period of time to share meals roughly twice a month. And we have a couple of questions that are meant to provoke some intentional conversation. Now, tables, this is really important for us. We proactively work to make sure they don't become a performance environment. What does that mean? Well, one thing it means is we actually tell hosts, hey, if you start getting like your Martha Stewart on, If you're doing that because you feel like you got to put on a show when your people come over, like, don't do that. They will smell it, right? Like, people can sense if this is a performance space or a practice space. And if our hosts set the tone, which says, I might make food, I might not, we might do a a carrion or a potluck, or I might order pizza tonight. If they sense that the energy that it comes from is not performative, it sets a tone for the whole community. 
And I, we, we've seen where like, like if, if, if a group of people become performative, you can be together for years, you can pray your brains out, you can read the Bible cover to cover and nothing powerful will happen. But if you find one another in a practice space where the performance pressure is off and you can actually show up and be yourself, we're discovering profound things will happen in the middle of that fellowship and we love what happens at tables. Also, reminder, if you want to be a part of a new table, we're getting ready to launch some. If you want to host or attend, just stick around today, right now, right after the gathering, and Matt Grable, our executive pastor, is going to lead a brief meeting so you can learn more about tables and let us know of your interest, and we'll follow up with you coming out of that. So that's, that's today, right after this gathering. Now let's talk about streets, which is our third major movement as a community. Streets are all the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground for common good. Well, um, the things that we tackle when we do streets kind of stuff, some of the stuff we tackle is heavy and serious. We're trying to move into places where there's great hurt or difficulty. And um, while we acknowledge the seriousness of the things that we're trying to work on, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. And frankly, like when people or communities move into issues of justice and peace in the world, those can be um, highly performative endeavors, if you know what I mean, right? We don't want them to be performative. We want them to be a way of practicing the way of Jesus with and for our neighbors right here in the city of South Bend. So an example of how we try to move toward a real and urgent need, but to do it in a way that doesn't take ourselves too seriously is what we did a couple years ago. We called it the belly burst. Was anybody around for that? Yeah, a few, right? So this was our less than 1K fun run on the streets of South Bend to raise funds and awareness for chronic homelessness. Chronic homelessness is a real thing in our city, even in our church. There's beloved members of South Bend City Church who have or who currently bump into the issues of chronic homelessness. And we wanted to raise funds and awareness, but we wanted to do it in a lighthearted way. So we put hammocks and couches along the street. We handed out mountains of donuts. And again, the whole endeavor was less than 1K. And uh, we were able to um, actually raise some awareness and to give some resources to partners who do good work on issues of chronic homelessness in our city. That's an example of us trying to bring a practice, even that kind of lighthearted approach to a very serious thing. And by the way, Belly Burst is coming back this year. We're very excited about this. It'll be a part of South Bend's best week ever on Saturday, June 8th. It'll be bigger and better than ever. There's a bunch more of us in this church than there were the last time we did it, and we're really looking forward to that. Uh, it's coming up. We want it on your calendar, but we also want you to know that if you'd like to sponsor, we'd love to invite you to sponsor. There's different levels of sponsoring from small dollar amounts to big dollar amounts. You can sponsor as a person or if you own a company. Either way, we'd love to invite you to do that. And one of the wins from the Belly Burst is the actual funding that goes to our partners who work on chronic homelessness. So the more sponsorship dollars that come in, the more dollars make it to our partners to help with chronic homelessness. If you're interested in sponsoring, email Ryan at South Bend City church.com. Uh, we'd love to have that conversation with you. One more thing uh, on the church calendar coming up as we take practices, not performances, seriously. Um, the, the gift of the church, one of the gifts, is that for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been, have been trying things, have been learning how everything from fasting to prayer to solitude to communal feasting to the Eucharist, how these things actually can help us grow in the way of Jesus. Not just performative rituals, but actual practices that form us in the way of Jesus. And during Lent, which is coming up beginning in March, uh, Jim Stump, who's a member of our church community here, is going to teach a Tuesday night gathering throughout that season on spiritual formation and practices. Super excited about this. It'll be right here in the room that you're sitting in right now at 112. Uh, Lent begins, I believe, uh, the first week of March. This will get 
uh, kicked off, I think, the second week of March, and we'll have more details coming. But it'll be a practice gathering. There'll be some teaching. Jim will take you into the heart of some of these disciplines or practices. But perhaps more importantly, you'll be invited to leave the gathering and then try some stuff and then come back the next week and debrief it with a few other people, huddle up with some brothers and sisters, and just talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of how it went. I'm really excited about this. I'm excited to learn from Jim and from the others who will be a part of that. So don't miss that coming up on Tuesday nights during Lent. Now, uh, to wrap this up, let's go back to the mountain for a moment, to my uh, repeated failure on a snowboard. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I, I remember being there on the mountain the first day, and like, at one point, I, I, like, I got to a flat um, between the slopes, you know? Well, if you're on skis, you can kind of skate your way through a flat, or you can use your poles, right? I would get to these flats, and like, because I didn't have enough momentum up, and I was scared of the edges on my board, I would have to like, just take my board off my boots and put it under my arm, and I'd carry it down the flat. And I'd put my board back on, and then I'd try to snowboard for another 20 yards, and then I'd get to another flat, and I'd take my thing off. And anyway, like 45 minutes later, I'd get to the bottom of the run, you know? And, and the thing is, in the middle of all this performance anxiety, I noticed something, which was my friends. So I was out there with a, a few buddies, and these are uh, really good friends of mine who I love very much. And the thing about the whole experience was, even while I was feeling all this performance anxiety, all this angst, my friends were amazing. I mean, like I said, they were all exceedingly competent skiers. Like, they were ready to go do double black diamonds, and yet, again and again and again, they'd go a little farther and then wait for me, and then I'd finally catch up, and they'd turn around, and they'd never give me a hard time, and they never made fun of me, and they never rolled their eyes, but they'd give me a big smile and a thumbs up, and they'd ask if I was okay. They'd say, you want to do another run, or what are you feeling? You want to try a blue? And I'd be like, no, but, you know, they'd ask. <laughs> um, and I was thinking there about practices, because I'm like, if I'm going to beat my body up on a mountain, I might as well get a sermon out of it, right? So I'm thinking about this practices, not performances thing, and the experience on the mountain with my friends. And I'm also thinking of another friend uh, who I met a few years ago named Cuthbert. Cuthbert, uh, I met in grad school. So it's my first summer in grad school. I'm at Notre Dame doing theology. And in our first class, it was the professor's habit to invite students to read from the text that we were studying. And day two or three or something like that, he called on Cuthbert. Now, I didn't know Cuthbert, I never met Cuthbert, but as soon as Cuthbert opened his mouth, I wanted to know Cuthbert. Cuthbert is an Irish Benedictine monk with the voice of a white James Earl Jones. (laughs) This deep, sonorous voice with that Irish accent reading the scriptures, and I got saved all over again. It was amazing. Like, it just got me, like, really stirred up, right? So anyway, I find out, like, through the grapevine in the classroom, and by the way, grad school at Notre Dame is exactly fourth grade. Like, we're all insecure, and we're whispering rumors about each other, and did you hear that guy's a monk, right? And so anyway... I realize he's a monk, and I think, I really want to get to know this guy. I wonder what it's like being a monk. I would like to learn from him, but I don't know if it's appropriate to walk up to a stranger who's in your class during the break, or is that, like, weird, right? So I'm in a break during the class, and I'm stalking Cuthbert through the hallway, trying to decide if I'm going to, like, walk up and make an introduction and see if I can learn about what it's like for him to be a monk. When Cuthbert turns and talks to me, and Cuthbert says to me, are you the Methodist megachurch pastor I've been hearing about? Which is kind of true. So I said something to him like, well, I I am a member of the pastoral staff at a church which has a United Methodist designation here in the area, and it does happen to be larger than the average church in America right now. (laughs) And he says to me, I have got to see that place. And I think this is excellent. And so I say, I'll make a deal with you. I'll show you my church if, in exchange, you'll let me buy you a pint of Guinness, because I'm into stereotypes and he's Irish, and let me ask you what it's like to be a monk. So we make the deal and we make the plan and I take him to my church and I show him around and then we go to Fiddler's Hearth right here in downtown South Bend. We're sitting there across the table from one another, sipping our Guinness. 
I'm asking him all these questions about being a monk, and I think Cuthbert can tell that I'm becoming awfully impressed with his performance. I'm asking him questions about their pattern of prayer, and it's a lot like, wow, I, I can't imagine, or man, that's, that's more than I could do, you know? And he cuts me off at some point. I'm in the middle of a question, and he stops me. And he says, I, I think you need to know, like, I didn't become a monk because I'm so spiritual. I didn't become a monk because I'm good at this. He said, I became a monk because my soul longs to pray, but I don't know how to pray without a community. It's like, I haven't been able to figure out how to get there on my own. He said, that's why I did this. And I was sitting there on the mountain with my friends, and I was thinking about Cuthbert, and I was thinking about you. And I was thinking about whether it's something physical like snowboarding or whether it's like the spiritual life of following Jesus. Like, the practices are hard sometimes. Sometimes you get to the end of yourself, and you don't have the strength to get up and try again. And then you look up, and your friends are there. And they got big smiles on their faces, and they say, like, hey, you doing all right? You want to do another one? And they're not giving you a hard time about it. And they're happy to tell you the stories of the moments when they've fallen over and failed too. And somehow you find in your midst that there's a strength for the practice that you didn't have on your own. And then you practice together, and like little by little, if you're paying attention, you might actually discover that the music gets pretty good. And the performance that starts to come out of your life isn't driven by any kind of shame or anxiety, but you've actually learned a little bit about how to make the music. And it's really beautiful. That's what's at stake for us in practices, not performances. That together, together we would be a, a community of practice, that we would help one another shake off the falls and the failure points, and that we would keep learning together. That's what's at stake for us. Uh, and that's why this mantra matters uh, so much for this community. So that's practices, not performances. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Next week, we'll conclude uh, with our final mantra. And then the following week, Scott Erickson, the artist, will be here. He's coming out from Portland. I'm super excited. That wall over there, that white cinder block wall in the corner is going to turn into a mantra wall with massive uh, versions of these images painted either on canvases or on the brick right there. Uh, we'll have that event at The Brick, the other venue, on Friday the 8th. We'd love to see you there. It'll be a really, really good, beautiful night. Um, and again, I hope that these mantras are a gift to you. I hope you put that card somewhere where it can encourage you, call you out, or keep your mindset in the right place as we grow together. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.